We're in the book of James. If you haven't already, turn with me to James chapter five. Quick, someone's coming. Shh, be quiet. Someone might hear you. Have you ever said those words? Usually it happens when a kid is doing something they shouldn't be doing, and they speak to another kid, right? Kids stealing food from the pantry when mom and dad aren't looking. Quick, someone's coming. Sometimes this happens, though, to adults, maybe more frequently than we'd like to admit. Did you know that in 2007, CBS, the main network who broadcasts the NCAA basketball tournament, introduced something on their web browser, if you wanted to watch the games, called the Boss Button. The Boss Button. This is what they say, their advertisement said, trying to watch March Madness at work, but don't want your boss to see? The NCAA has you covered. With just one click, the button will immediately change your screen from basketball to what appears to be a PowerPoint page filled with charts. Use your computer to watch games and other programs and select the boss button, a shortcut that can hide the game quickly. And in this case, make your fill, screen fill with something that looks like you're being productive. Last year, the boss button was pushed over 1.7 million times in a matter of two weeks. Quick, someone's coming. Or more accurate for this passage, shh, someone can hear us, talk quieter. Did you hear what they said about me? Can't believe they would treat me this way. Who do they think they are? This happens when we begin to gossip or, or complain or grumble about someone else. What emotions does it bring to your heart when you hear, quick, someone's coming, or shh, someone might hear? You ever been caught talking about someone when you know you shouldn't be? This morning in James 5, he's talking directly with those that have been abused by rich landowners. And in James' usual fashion, he identifies their issues and then shows them a better way. Quick, someone's coming. Jesus is coming, James says. How are we living in light of Jesus' return? How patient are you when you've been wronged? Do you have the tendency to grumble and complain to others when things don't go the way you want when you suffer? Have you forgotten this morning how compassionate and gracious our God has been to you? All of these questions James brings to the surface this morning, and if you haven't turned already, turn with me to James 5. And Really, if you don't have a Bible open, friends, you're gonna be lost this morning. So we, we've provided some in the chairs underneath there, and if you don't have one, that's, please take that with you, but it's gonna be on page 952 as you turn to James 5. And if you're unfamiliar with looking at a Bible, the, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, so James 5 is the big number. And we're gonna read, I want you to follow with me as I read verses one through 11. Those are the small numbers there in James chapter five. So follow with me as I read. Verse one, <clears throat> come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on 
the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This morning, we're going to look at the topic of patience in light of Christ's return in the midst of suffering. These people were suffering. Instead of trusting God, James says they began attacking one another. They were complaining. They were grumbling. They, they had forgotten that God was there and that he heard and that he saw everything, and they had forgotten that he would answer. I also want to make you aware, if you haven't already, that you're in for a real treat this morning because we're going to partake of every ordinance the church has in the next hour. It doesn't happen very often. We're going to sit under God's word being preached, and then we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together as we remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and then we will enjoy together the baptism of three young ladies. All in one Sunday. It's a super Sunday. We read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, and we see the word. That's what we're going to gather for this morning. So before I begin, I want to pray, encourage you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you as we start. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under your word. And God, I ask that you would speak to your people here that you would help them to understand what your word says and how to apply it to their life. God, that they would leave different, changed than when they came in. And we'll be sure to give you the glory for what you do in this place this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. You should have received a bulletin and an outline when you came in, and so there's, there's some points there on this outline, and so one of the first one I'm going to go through is the, the patient farmer. The patient farmer, verses 7 and 8. How many of you here this morning would classify yourself as a patient person? I define patience as the ability to accept delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Is there anyone here that would say that you fit that description? It is said that patience is a virtue possessed by few and sought by many. And we live in a world that champions the instant. Just look at some of our foods. Instant rice, instant oatmeal, instant potatoes, instant pudding. We, 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 we gauge things by how quickly we can get it. And we live in a culture that doesn't value patience. Right? I mean, if my phone doesn't load the website fast enough, I get impatient. But how many of you remember plugging your computer into your phone jack? Some of you kids are looking like, what? We had home phones then, okay? And we had to wait. You know, if a company now can get something to you in three days, but another company comes along and get it to you in two days, what happens to the first company? They either change or they are out of business. Economy really cultivates and encourages impatience. Impatient people are shallow people 
who haven't taken the time to think about things. Impatient people are immature, who, who are reckless and tend to make foolish choices and ultimately miss all sorts of opportunities. And so James writes for us, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And James, again, is exposing what is going on in our hearts when we're going through suffering. If if you remember last week, the the rich are opposing the poor. We looked at that in the first six verses. They're defrauding them. They are stealing from them. They're not paying their wage, and people are losing things. Some are even dying because they're not able to to supply what they need. And James reassures them in verse 4 that God has heard, that God has seen. The Lord of hosts knows their suffering. And and James sharply rebukes the rich for their way of life. And then he changes then to address those that are suffering in verses 7 through 11. And he says in verse 7 and in verse 8 and verse 9, this phrase, be patient, which literally means be long-suffering. He is warning us against impatience, against pettiness, against jealousy of those that seemingly have things go easy for them. And ultimately, they have forgotten God. And James begins with this admonishment. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James is calling them to patience now simply because they are suffering. And the motivating force behind waiting is what is coming. And who is coming, friends? Four of you know. Read the Bible in front of you. Who is coming? Jesus is coming. I have news for you, friends. Hard times make us long for Christ's return. And James is telling the church to be patient over their trials to, so that they can gain maturity and completeness, a theme that he talks about in prior chapters. And he says, be patient until that process is crowned with the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And I've noticed in my life and the life of the church and members in the church, we usually don't hear, I can't wait for Christ's return when everything is going good in our life. You know, you usually don't hear that. All my needs are being met. My kids are finally obeying me. My employer treats me really well. In fact, they're paying me too much. The IRS is giving me more money back. My team finally won the championship. My in-laws really like me now. Lord, come back. You don't hear that. It's only when we are in the midst of trials and suffering and we hurt, and we ache, and we think, when are you coming back? Perhaps today. And James is, is encouraging this, these churches, these people to endure, to keep going, keep trusting in God. Remember, he's faithful. And to drive home the point, James uses the illustration of a farmer. He says, see, consider, look How the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until receives the early and late rains. Commentary Douglas Moo writes, The farmer who prepares a field sows seed and then waits for a crop as a very natural illustration of patience. He continues, he says, He can do little to affect the outcome, but must wait and pray for the right rain at the right time. And in Palestine, the farmer was particularly dependent on the rain that came in late autumn and early spring. 
Why is the, the farmer able to wait? He knows that waiting is not useless. Waiting is not in vain. And as waiting happens, he knows that a radical change is taking place, even though he can't see it. The seed is growing all kinds of shoots. And when those shoots grow longer and larger, they grow up towards the topsoil. And these shoots will finally make themselves seen and turn into a plant. And that plant will grow blossoms. And then those blossoms will end up growing fruit. There's a clear reason for the waiting in regards to the farmer. He knows that there's so much going on under the soil. And if the farmer could not hope for the rains, all the plowing and all the planting and weeding would be, would be all for naught. But he also knows, friends, that he is not the instrument for that change. It's the early and late rains. He cannot boast. He's not there under the soil, changing the seed, manipulating the seed. He's waiting with faith. And he's learned from experience what will happen. You plant the seed and the rains come to bring growth and change. See, the farmer gets that. The question this morning is, do we get that? Do we understand this? Are we ready and prepared to wait when suffering comes into our life? Are we aware that God is bringing a radical change to us as we endure suffering? You know, there's two responses to suffering. You either trust God or you trust yourself. Only two choices. Which one do you choose? You either choose to trust God in his time and in his schedule and his wisdom, or you trust your assessment of the situation. You trust your schedule. You trust your timing. You trust what you think should happen. And you make a choice. Which one is it? Elizabeth Elliot, who is no stranger to suffering, who's husband was murdered by tribal men who was left to raise her daughter on her own writes this she says God is God because he is God he is worthy of my trust and obedience I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakable beyond my largest notions of what he is up to God is God you see bad things happen in our lives and what Elizabeth Elliot is saying you you should preach this to your heart friends if I don't learn to trust God in this, I will find no rest in my life. Only if I believe God knows what he's doing and wiser than me, then I can have rest. Impatience is a lack of humility. And we need to humble ourselves and say, I don't know, but God knows. God is God and I will find rest nowhere else but in him. But on the other side, the other choice is a tendency to trust in ourselves, to trust in our own wisdom, to trust in our own thoughts, our own schedule. What does this sound like? Well, either externally or internally, you say, not again. This isn't fair. I can't believe this is happening to my life again. I deserve better than this. What in the world do they think they're doing to me? I can't believe this. How could this happen? They should know better. And friends, every time suffering comes, you have to make a decision in that moment. In that moment, will I trust God or will I trust myself? 
And if you trust God, it will eventually lead to rest and calmness and peace and the ability to forgive. And if you trust in yourself, you will be eaten up with resentment. You'll be eaten up with self-pity and cynicism and anxiety and restlessness and ulcers and heart attacks eventually. And you will live a life that is miserable. And I have news for you, I see it. I see it sometimes, friends. When I walk around, I see it. So James preaches to us right here, right now, and he says in the verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What is the heart? The heart is the, the directional system. The heart is the, the steering wheel for our life. Your behavior isn't caused by situations and relationships outside of you. No, your biggest problem is you. And so if our heart is the steering wheel of our behavior, then we better be about the business of knowing and strengthening our heart to obey God. When James writes to us to strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near, he is being very pastoral and, and counseling us to be aware of our hearts because waiting exposes our hearts to what's really going on inside. Waiting exposes the doubts that linger in our hearts. Some of you maybe sit here and you really want to be married. And you think, why am I not married yet? Why hasn't God brought a spouse? And you begin to grumble and complain. Some of you sit and you want kids. Where are the kids? You know, you work hard as a parent. You, you, you feel like you could be a good parent. Why hasn't God given me kids yet? Some of you sit in, in jobs and think, why haven't I been promoted yet? I, I'm faithful to this job. Why don't they recognize it? Some of you sit in a different. You, you think, why can I not retire from this position? You're exhausted and, and you want to finish this and move on to something else. And there's others who just want to go home. Why hasn't God taken me home? We have a list of people in our church that are suffering and physical pain and trauma and falling every few months and breaking bones and they're some losing their memory and each week seems harder and harder and they ask when is God going to end this suffering I just want to go home and there's some of you sitting here that you so desperately want to see that loved one a friend, to come to know Jesus. And you think, why? Why hasn't God saved them? I've been sharing the gospel. I've been faithful. Why hasn't he redeemed them? See, waiting in the midst of suffering expresses doubts that still linger in our heart. Is God trustworthy? Can I really follow him with all of my life? God wants me to follow him in everything. Well, where is this fill in the blank that he promised me? You may not be suffering because of rich landowners like James' original readers, but I know that some are suffering. In fact, I spent time thinking through that just this week talking to seven different people in our church family that are in the midst of suffering. 
all varied. And friends, church family, you need to look around and you need to realize that this gathering together is not just to consume. You're not just here to consume a church service and to leave. I don't know if you realize it, but you're sitting with people who are suffering. And part of the church is to get to know them. To spend time with them. If the only time you see someone from church is on Sundays, friends, you're doing it wrong. We, I love to spend time with people, but I'm only one of five elders. We can't do it all. We need the church. We need you to, to be the church, to spend time and to, and to ask people honest questions. How are you doing? And friends, answer honestly. In fact, I had someone this morning, answer honestly. God's called you in that moment to minister to them. And you can this morning challenge them in a gentle, loving way. How can I pray for you? Are you trusting God? Can I walk with you through this? See, when suffering comes into our life and and waiting in the midst of suffering, it it exposes what's going on in, in us. And sometimes we begin to question the goodness of God to wonder if, in fact, is he truly with us? Will, will he follow through with the promise that he's given us? Does God really have our best interest in mind? In the midst of waiting, there's a war that's happening in our hearts during the periods of suffering and waiting. There's an enemy that's seeking to throw us off course, to direct our minds and our thoughts to doubt rather than trust. And the, and the enemy is there, and he's not there as a silent observer but an active participant to deceive us into thinking that God is really not for us. Friends, this, is, this happened at the beginning in the garden and it continues to happen. And we need to fight the fight of faith. He says we need to fight for your heart. You need to strengthen your heart. And I need to tell you something else about your heart. Your heart is not naturally on your side. Your heart is not neutral Your heart is not in the middle being swayed to one side or the other. No, your heart will naturally, instinctively go to the other side of trusting self. Your heart, no matter how good of a person you think you are, is naturally evil, the Bible says. It naturally goes to the direction of self-pity and selfishness, of being sure of what you think is best. And your heart doesn't have humility naturally. No, it's self-absorbed naturally. So James preaches to us, strengthen your heart. You need to establish your heart, strengthen your heart. You need to direct your heart. You need to preach the gospel to your heart. And you can read about this all throughout the Psalms. David pours out his his heart, his soul, and what's going on. Psalm 13 is one of them, where he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And I don't know when this was written. I can only imagine him running from Saul at this moment. In the verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because, of, because I'm shaken. See, do you hear in David's voice that he's struggling and he's hurting? There's suffering going on. And if he ended in verse four, it would be sin because you cannot charge God with injustice and unfairness because you'll always be wrong. 
No, he's pleading with God. And then he writes in verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord. Friends, you know, when we come in here, again, uh, these musicians work hard to present to you worship, but, but the focus is not necessarily them. They would say that we're singing together and I need you to sing. This, it's in the Bible a whole lot. We sing together as the church. We sing together. Those that are suffering and going through trials and, and hard things need to hear the singing of God's people. And David says this, my heart shall rejoice. He's telling his heart what to do. And we need to be drinking in the gospel, dwelling on the gospel, feeding ourselves in the rich nutrients of the gospel rather than giving way to doubt and fear. See, our flesh wants to give up. Better yet, our flesh wants to grumble at the perceived injustice that has been dealt to us. Our flesh wants to, the, our flesh wants to grumble at others when we're in the midst of suffering. But James has a better way for us. Friends, how do you respond when you suffer? Do you celebrate the weight when you're suffering? You know, friends, that when you are waiting during suffering, you're not waiting for grace. While you wait, you're getting grace. Ugh. Waiting is not what you get when it's over. Waiting is about what you become while you wait on the Lord. Waiting has meaning. Waiting has purpose for the Christian. And if we understand this, it will change our life. It will revolutionize our suffering. That God is producing a harvest in our lives. He wants fruit to grow. And the only way he can do it is through trials and troubles and suffering. And as you notice there in verse seven, he calls it a precious fruit of the earth. A precious fruit of the earth. It is valuable. It is costly. It is held in high esteem. This isn't some small squash here. No, this is precious because it's a fruit that brings nourishment and sustenance to our lives. So James encouraged us this morning, don't waste your suffering, friends. Don't waste it. Don't be so quick to see it go. Be patient, trust the Lord, not in yourself, and you will be like the patient farmer. Second is the grumbling victim. The grumbling victim, verse nine. Now, if James is really gonna get close now, and if you're not uncomfortable yet, you will be in a moment. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What is grumbling? It's when people are frustrating, when they are disappointing, when they're disillusioning you, when they're complicating things, and you respond by grumbling. Grumbling is the response that you sometimes do outwardly, but in many cases, it's done inwardly. Usually, it's a private sin. Grumbling is responding to people who disappoint and frustrate you with resentment and negativity and cynicism. And really, it's the lack of long-suffering. It's impatience. You lack patience. And why is grumbling a lack of long-suffering? Why is it a lack of patience? Because you've given up on that person instead of loving them and continue to pull for them and care for them, even when they frustrate you to the extreme. You've given up on them and you write them off. You stop pulling for them. You sinfully respond by grumbling about them, either to them or most likely to someone else. Shh, someone's listening. We gotta shut the door so I can talk about this person. 
Friends, if you believe in the theology of the sovereignty of God, then every moment of grumbling towards other is grumbling against the plan of God. Did you get that? God chose to put them in your life. Friends, your grumbling is deeply theological. It is clear evidence of dissatisfaction of the plan of Almighty God for your life. You see, James isn't saying that grumbling is just bad. Just try to avoid it if you can. It's not what James is saying. Grumbling is a sin. Do not grumble against one another. Why? The judge is standing at the door. You'll, You'll be judged for your grumbling against one another. This is... Serious, because grumbling is a seed of something terribly poisonous and toxic inside of you. It's, it's bad, and he wants you to know it. That's why the judge is standing at the door. How do I put this? God, God doesn't condemn things just because you enjoy them, or because they're easy, or because he just wants to give you busy work for your life. That's not what God's up to. A doctor doesn't forbid a patient from eating something because it tastes good. A doctor doesn't God, a doctor forbids a patient from eating something that, even though it tastes good, is undermining their health and will eventually kill them. And God condemns those things that are eating away at the fabric of the peace of your heart and with your relationships with others. God calls us to live at peace and live in harmony with one another. And he condemns this because it's destructive to you and to others. That's why grumbling is so serious. Grumbling is complaining, it's scorning, it's zinging people and griping about people and griping about circumstances. Grumbling is always finding fault. It's, it's nitpicking, it's, it's tearing people apart with your words. Friends, it's sinful. And ultimately, grumbling is anti-gospel. It's simply your life for mine. That goes against the gospel, which is my life for yours. Grumbling is constantly saying, you do this for me. You you satisfy me. You you make my life easier. Your life for mine. And what a horrible way to live. But the gospel says, my life for yours. And how liberating that is. There's nothing more enslaving than to be looking at every situation and saying, what's in this for me? This is life-taking, not life-giving. It's the opposite of lamenting over a hard situation. It's one thing to lament over situations that even David does in the book of Lamentations of of what the the situation that God has given to you. No, this is grumbling. This is destructive. This seeks to tear down, not build up. And when we grumble against one another, we're not trusting God. The churches that James is writing to are not trusting in God. They're complaining with one another. If our God is a just God and you've been wrong, you need to trust God to fulfill his justice. If God is the God of hosts that we've seen already in this chapter, if he's the commander of all the armies, if he is strong and he is mighty, then we need to trust him to fulfill his promises for us. How do we get out of grumbling? Here's the way that will melt your heart when you feel it rise up against others when you're suffering, when you're irritable or unhappy, a way that can melt your heart down and start to become patient and radiant and loving with people who ordinarily are irritating to you, the way you can do that is to think about how much you've taxed God's patience. 
you have to go back and think about God. I remember as a boy visiting relatives in Indiana and working in the fields and getting up early and helping milking cows and taking care of animals, and, and they seemed to have on a farm hundreds of cats that just roamed. And one time I saw a cat that was stuck in some way in a barn and couldn't free himself, and as a boy I reached out to help, and, and you know what happened, right? It began to bite me and scratch me and claw me, eventually going after me on my back, and I was all bloodied up. I just wanted to help. If you want to be a, become a gracious person, you have to think of all the places and times in which God was feeding you and he was protecting you and he was holding you up. And at the very least, you were ungrateful and indifferent to him and ignored and forget him. Or at worst, you were biting and scratching at him during that time. Can you think about that? Here's what's so ironic. If, if you don't see how much you've taxed the patience of God, if the thought of, of what you've done to him and how you've tried his patience and how over the years he was holding you up and you were biting and scratching him and clawing at him, you will, you will struggle to be patient with others. And friends, you can't exhort yourself into patience. Some of you now want to go away and say, I'm going to beat myself up to be patient. Can't say that. Can't say, I just, I just need to be patient. I just need to be patient and, and beat yourself that way. Some of you want to do that. Some of you think I'm just going to man up and do this, but it doesn't work that way. You can't beat yourself into patience. You can only repent yourself into patience. You have to see that God was slow to anger with you, and that will make you slow to anger with others instead of grumbling and complaining with others. You have to repent yourself into patience. Friends, is your life a series of grumblings and complaints or a hymn of praise? Do you complain more when you're suffering than praise? How do you respond when things don't go your way? Do you have more in common with the grumbling victim or the patient farmer? Friends, perhaps today you need to repent from your impatience and grumbling and look to Christ for strength to endure the suffering that God has brought into your life. Last, this morning, I want you to see the suffering prophets. Ultimately, James wants us to follow the example of someone, and he points us backwards. He says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. If you think back, and we won't cover all of them, Moses who, who dealt with the grumbling detractors and David fleeing Saul's death threats and Elijah and Mount Carmel before the prophets of Baal and then who was hounded and hated and the hardship he endured and Jeremiah suffered at the hands of the kings of Judah and Daniel when he was thrown in the lion's den and Amos when he was falsely accused of raising a conspiracy and told to go back to where he came from. So there's time and time again these prophets and Jesus was right in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, meaning their reputations, their words, even their lives were directly related to God's redemptive purpose. And the James uses the word patience here, a little different word than 
we see earlier, it's steadfastness here. It literally means, though, to hyper stand in place. Taking notes, write that down. Steadfastness, to hyper stand in place. Hyper stand in place. Jeff, what do you mean? What is James saying? Let me give you an example. Maybe this will resonate for some of you that have served in the military or police force. If you're in a battle and your commanding officer says to you, you stand right there and occupy that position. No matter what they throw at you or how fierce the attack is, you cannot retreat. You cannot give any ground. You cannot lose a step because the, if the enemy gets by you, everything is lost. The field is lost. The town is lost. The army is lost. So stand. Don't move. Don't budge. That's the word. Hyper stand. And these prophets are mentioned here in the Bible simply because they obeyed in spite of the fact that nothing was going right in their lives and everything God was setting them seemed senseless, but they stayed put. And as a result, they triumphed. And that's what James is trying to say to us this morning. And then he mentions Job in verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness, the hyperstanding of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful reading through Job right now and morning devotions and learning again of Job and how he learned patience. And if you want to succeed in waiting on the Lord and trusting him over yourself, you need to look at Job. He wasn't perfect, far from it, but he was better than most. And he learned a lot through that God-ordained suffering that came to his life. And ultimately, Job needed to be changed because God is after a radical heart change when we're in the midst of suffering. We learn in Job 42, his response, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and I'll make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He he repents. He realizes the suffering was there on purpose and God's compassion continued throughout. And God is a compassionate and long-suffering God toward us. And we see this through the life of Job. That's why James ends in this, this section, this declaration, verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He continues to abound in loving kindness. But James goes a step further than those two passages, and he coins a word in the Greek that doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. James writes, the Lord is compassionate. Literally, he is full of compassion. You have the New American Standard. It's what it says there. He is full of compassion. Church, God is more than compassionate. He is filled with compassion. What an incredible thought. He doesn't run out. There's, the waiting is not there to block compassion and mercy. The waiting is a vehicle of compassion and mercy in your life. And what we need most, what we need to realize in our lives most is we need refinement. We need that radical change, and that's the story of Job. And if you read the book of Job, Job is a different man at the end. And friends, the truth is that life without struggle and difficulty, you may not believe me, but life without struggle and difficulty would be bland and tasteless. 
Life with no struggles, no, no pain, no suffering is flavorless. Malcolm Muggleridge was an English journalist and an author who in his book, Jesus Rediscovered, said this about the prospect of a world without suffering and pain. He says, suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Our refinement, our, our sanctification would be impossible, friends, without suffering and without trouble. All of our character building is largely dependent upon suffering that God brings into our life. And the hard truth is that no wise person would seek to be exempt from a healthy discipline of trouble. God allows suffering in our lives for our betterment and for his glory. We cannot and should not run from suffering. Friends, we need to lean into suffering. And what better way to do that is to do it with the church. We need to lean into suffering and rely on our brothers and sisters in the Lord. See, suffering increases our trust in God. And we seldom trust God as much as we should unless we're suffering in trouble. When, when I'm in trouble or suffering, it seems to sharpen my focus and increase my grip on God. When all of my attempts to get myself out of trouble fail, I'm forced to trust in the one who can truly help me. And suffering also causes us to display God's glory. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is glory coming, friends. And this glory that is coming is so satisfying, so incredibly beautiful, and totally meat-needing, a joy-producing kind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of what? Glory beyond all comparison. And suffering causes us to display God's glory and suffering leads us to God's glory. How do you glorify God? Glorifying God means you show by your actions and your attitudes that God is glorious to you, that he is valuable, that he is precious and desirable and satisfying. And the greatest way to show that someone satisfy your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction fall away. When you keep on rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God, and not other things in life, that he is your great source of joy. This is why James says in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the test of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has brought suffering so that you would grow and that you would rely on him. We shouldn't run from it. Quick. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. Someone hears all. Someone sees all. Someone will come and make all things new. Do you believe that, friends? 
Have you forgotten this week that God is coming back to bring final resolution to all the issues on earth? You know, I want our church to be known as a people who hope in the Lord when trouble comes. I want our church to embrace suffering with patience and faith, knowing that God is sovereignly in control and desires the very best for us. I, I want our church to glorify God by all that we do. I want our church not to be known as grumblers and complainers, but glory lovers and glory displayers. Men and women who reflect the glory of God in our lives and in our words and in our actions. And where do we find the motivation for this? We see this most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus was truly an innocent sufferer, perfect, truly obedient to the very end. Only Jesus loved the Lord with all his heart, his soul, his strength, his mind, and only did Jesus love his neighbor like himself. Jesus deserved the perfect life with no suffering. Instead, he was poor and misunderstood and rejected and betrayed and detained and denied. And he was arrested on trumped up charges and dragged in front of a, a fake court and tortured and killed. And through it all, friends, he was perfectly patient. He was the only innocent sufferer. And the forces of darkness, evil, and sin were coming down on him, and he stood his ground. He hyper-stood steadfast in the face of evil. Our evil placed on him. He stood and took our shame. He took our guilt. He took our sins upon himself because we could never do it ourselves. And he obeyed. Even when he was in the garden praying, not my will, but, but thine be done. And that is patience and honesty. My father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is patience. He stood his ground, hyper standing. He didn't flinch. He didn't pull out. He didn't bail on obedience. He went to the cross and obeyed the father. And why? Why did he do it? Why was he perfectly patient? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he died for our sins and took the punishment we deserve. See, that's the general, but specifically, especially for what we've learned this morning, Jesus, through his perfect patience, atoned for our impatience so that the Father could endlessly be patient with us, never giving up on us, letting us down or pulling back from us, even when we fail him and continue to do so. Jesus Christ was perfectly patient when God was abandoning him on the cross and he did it for you and he did it for me so that we could be patient in these situations in our life for him. Friends, Jesus is worth trusting with all of your life. And when we have impatience, we are showing those moments that we've lost trust in God. When we grumble against one another in the midst of trials and suffering, we're showing that we believe that God is not in control. Friends, God sent Jesus to die for your impatience and for your grumbling so that God can be incredibly patient and loving towards you. And I would implore you to turn to him this morning, to trust in God, to submit your lives to him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
He is not put off by you. He is patiently waiting for you. Let's pray. As I pray, I'm going to have the men come forward to serve this morning's communion. Join with me. Father, we recognize that we live, we live in the middle of the already and not yet. And I, I know, and you know, God, that some of your children here are in the throes of suffering. And we ask that you continue to give them grace. Father, thank you that we can come to you with our hearts and our hurts and our pain, knowing that you care. Help us, Father, to be patient people. Help us, teach us to trust in you. Help us to believe again this morning that you are more than compassionate, that you are filled with compassion. And we see this most clearly on the cross. Father, we gather together this morning as a your church, to remember what you've done for us in Calvary. That you bought us back from the dominion of sin. We thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. And may you be honored as we celebrate together this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.